Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about the Arizona election update, Cochise won't certify, Mojave does under threat, interview with Elliot Resnick, author of Golden Nuggets, there's a longer title here, um, and also founder of Jews for Donald Trump, the Defense of Marriage Act debate today in the United States Senate, and why Joe Sixpack should care about the Great Reset. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. And hello again, and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. First, I must plug our show for tomorrow, excuse me, for Thursday of this week. We have our special Thursday show each week in studio audience, one guest the whole time. We have Dr. Kelly Ward joining us. She's the chairman of the Arizona GOP. A perfect segue into my first five segments. She is going to bring us up to date what's happening in the gray state of Arizona and the battle over whether or not to certify the ridiculous November 8th midterm elections in Arizona. Quick little update on what's happened. Uh, yesterday, Monday, was the day that the um, state law in Arizona requires every county to certify the elections. And so one county said no. The county of Cochise, C-O-C-H-I-S-E, Cochise just said, can't certify, need answers. Everyone's watching Maricopa County, of course. Cochise County said they want answers, they want verification that the machines that were functioning, which is ridiculous because they weren't, um, and they have delayed their certification until Thursday. They are now the subject of litigation. They've already been sued over this, over their refusal to certify the election results in Cochise County. And I want to urge you, I cannot dive into it right now. I may later in the show. I want to urge you to read one column that was uh, dedicated to what's occurring in the Arizona elections. This is from the substack of Emerald Robinson, who is a brilliant writer, thinker. Emerald Robinson's substack is called, Is the Federal Government Rigging Maricopa County? Honestly, she got, she's, a, she's a genuine journalist. She researches, she writes beautifully and really understandably. You got to read there about how extremely um, alarming what's occurring in Maricopa County, Arizona really is. So I will, I'm going to play a clip from one person there in a moment. But first I want to tell you the other county where uh, there's a um, a bat was a battle over whether or not to certify the election of November 8th uh, in Arizona is Mojave County. And for Emilio, my happy producer, I sent you a link. This is the first clip. Listen to what this member, this gentleman whose job it is to honestly attempt to certify or not the elections of Mojave County and what he had to say and why he went ahead and certified. If you can play that clip, please, Emilio. Um, I vote aye under duress. Um, I found out today that I have no choice but to vote aye or I'll be arrested and charged with a felony. Um, I don't think that that is what our founders had in mind when they used the democratic process to elect our leaders, our self, former self-government. I find that very disheartening. With your vote of four eyes and zero nays, you've approved item 1B. Anything else for the good of the order? We're adjourned. Okay, you can, yeah, this, so this gentleman's name, who you just heard speaking, is Ron Gould. He's a member of the Mojave County Board of Supervisors. He wants to vote not to certify because he can see what literally millions of Americans can see. Things were out of line in Arizona, but he was actually told he would be charged criminally with a felony if he didn't certify an election. And actually, when you think about certification, I'm going to guess the form requires you to certify under penalty of perjury. So he's got to certify something which he doesn't believe, which he seriously questions. And he's being told, you just have to certify. This is a, a, rubber, a forced rubber stamp. And the other quick thing to tell you, wrapping up the first five is this. This uh, litigation filed against Cochise County. Um, this is, first of all, threats from the Arizona government. And let me remind you in case this fact eluded you or you forgot this, the most outrageous conflict of interest exists in the fact that in Arizona, the Republican candidate for governor was Carrie Lake, been on my show before. She's a great, 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 you know, MAGA patriot. 
So she ran for governor, and the person on the Democrat side who ran was named Katie Hobbs. Katie Hobbs is the current, the incumbent, the still Secretary of State Arizona, whose job it is to oversee elections. So Katie Hobbs has a job of overseeing her own election, her effort to move from Secretary of State to governor, and if there is never a conflict of interest, I mean, this is law school 101. She's overseeing the election and making decisions regarding election integrity as secretary of state on a ballot in which she is running for the highest office in the state. I mean, I'm just going to tell you, if it were the roles are reversed and this was true of a Republican candidate, that you were secretary of state and you would not step down, would not step aside, even when asked formally, can you get yourself out of the way and allow for a fair election? She wouldn't do it. You wouldn't have the media, you'd have a media mouthpiece in this country complaining about the absurdity, the dishonesty of the election. Katie Hobbs, doesn't matter. She's Secretary of State. She overseen the election. Now she's engaged in the, the legal hassling of any of the county super, uh, board of supervisors who won't certify the election. Outrageous does not even begin to describe. More on this Thursday. I do urge you to remember to mark your calendar and tune in to Thursday's show for our interview uh, with excuse me, Arizona GOP Chair Dr. Kelly Ward. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. Okay, so we have a guest joining us, and this gentleman's name is Elliot Resnick, and uh, he is joining us via Skype, and um, I'll... Well, he, he founded a website, or he is the creator of a website called Jews for Donald Trump, J-E-W-S, Jews, and the number, the digit for uh, Donald Trump. And, you know, it's a website basically bringing out the arguments why Jewish Americans should support Donald Trump. Uh, on top of that, he has a book out, which I um, printed out, not the whole book. Um, I couldn't get a hold of the book in time for this interview. And I'm actually, as I'm telling you this story, I didn't even get a picture of this cover. Actually, Emilio, can you sneak and try to do that while we're talking? I'll go on to Amazon and get, if you can, the picture of the, the image of this book. But the book is called Nuggets of Gold, Donald Trump on Marriage, War, Plastic Straws, and 330 Other Topics, which is a hilarious title. And so uh, fortunately, uh, the uh, author uh, who's joining us here, um, Elliot Resnick, was able to send me a PDF and I printed off a random set of pages to, to look through it. But so, it's a bunch of nuggets of things uh, that Donald Trump had to say, and they're all you know, completely wonderful. He's also a columnist, been published in uh, Newsweek, and um, excuse me, in uh, Daily Caller and many other places. And I really want to talk to him both about why he is urging that Jewish Americans should support Donald Trump and just to share some of the nuggets in his uh, new book out now, Gold, Nuggets of Gold, Donald Trump on Marriage, etc. Welcome to the show, please, Elliot Resnick. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm glad you're joining us. And before I dive into your, I mean, the, the book has a great title and, and I'm sure it took hours to go through listening to his many, many, Donald Trump's many speeches and rallies and grabbing these nuggets. Before we get to that, um, just tell us a little bit about your background before you got involved in this, in your political column writing. So I was working for the Jewish press, which is the largest and oldest independent Jewish weekly in the country for 15 years from 2006 to 2021. The last three years of my tenure there, I was the chief editor. Um, we parted ways after I was in the Capitol on January 6th, and the paper was concerned that I would be a financial liability to them. So that was the end of my career there. I now have a podcast. I also have written, like you said, some articles for more than two dozen articles for the Daily Caller, Town Hall, Newsweek, World Net Daily, many articles, of course, in the Jewish press. I have several books, thank God, of interviews I've done for the Jewish press called Movers and Shakers, Volume 1, 2, and 3. So um, along the way, somehow I managed to get a PhD in Jewish history. Also, you're forcing me to brag, which I prefer not doing, but um, we live in a world where people don't pay attention to you unless you've accomplished some, some things in life. So I suppose this is necessary, but... That's a great resume. I was going to tell you, the lodestar, just the one book would be enough, but all the columns you've written. I do want to ask you, tell me about the Movers and Shakers. What, what is that about? So I'm those are Movers and Shakers, people I've interviewed, um, half Jewish, half not, more Jewish than not because it was a Jewish newspaper, but Jews, Orthodox Jews, the Jewish press service and Orthodox Jewish clientele, they are mostly conservative-leaning because if you believe in the Bible, the divinity of the Bible, of course you're going to be conservative-leaning. So... 
I have all sorts of there, but let's say I have, I interviewed Ben Shapiro, David Horowitz, Charles Proudhammer, um, different uh, people that we think are heroes. So uh, Laura Loomer, Katie Hopkins, so. Okay. I, it, first of all, it sounds wonderful. And it's very interesting. I didn't get a chance to tell you before we, we uh, for our listeners, I really don't know uh, Mr. Resnick, just met him kind of electronically in the last couple of days. Um, but two things about Israel. Uh, one is that I regularly talk about Israel on the show and how, what it just is the, it is the bastion of Western civilization, the little, you know, representation of what a country is supposed to be like with free elections and, and rights to the, uh, just, we, and so I defend and speak up for Israel all the time. Uh, my husband's business partner is an Israeli citizen and they do international startups. So um, they, we, he's, my husband's been to Israel many times and I've been twice. And I'm a big defender of Israel. In fact, we just went to a, an event involving a um, startup from Israel. So, you know, I love Israel. It is interesting, actually, in America, how many Jewish Americans vote Democrat. We have a close friend who lived across from us in our past house before we moved up to the country, uh, who is an active, very active conservative Jewish woman, uh, active Republican Party. And she's often lamenting about how the Jewish population in America for some reason, continues to vote Democrat, even though, to her view, and it sounds like yours, when you line up biblical values that are, you know, the Old Testament values that are the the, the core of the Jewish faith, they really should drive you to the Republican Party. So uh, it, this isn't why we're talking today, but what, what do you think is, I mean, do you do this in part to try to inspire Jewish Americans to reconsider why so many of them vote Democrat? Is that part of what you're trying to do? Well, I wish I could reach them. I, I don't really think I can for the most part because we're re what really is at the core is Jew can mean two things. It can mean you believe in Judaism. It also can just mean, though, that you're born to a Jewish mother. So, you know, if you don't believe, let's say, you know, in, in Christ, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in Islam, you're not a Muslim. But you could be a Jew and not believe in Judaism because Jew is both a religious and an ethnic identity. And unfortunately, 80% of the Jewish people are not Bible-believing. They don't believe in the divinity of the Bible or of the oral law, which we believe was given along with the Bible. So if you don't believe in the divinity of the Bible, you are now left with kind of like, a, I think, a gaping hole in your soul. Because I think the Jews are sort of a spiritual and idealistic people. And if you don't, if you, if you rip Judaism out of their soul, which is what they've done to themselves, you have now left with a huge hole and you need to fill it with something. And many people have pointed out that liberalism for many people, and I think for many liberal Jews, is a religion of sorts. And there's a certain fanaticism that, that, they, that they bring towards environmentalism and the abortion debate, the fanatics, because they've uh, adopted liberal, liberalism as their erzatz religion. And um, if, so to the, you know, if you really want Jews to vote Republican, you really need to make them first um, Bible-believing Jews, then they'll vote Republican. But as long as they mm -hmm. remain irreligious, unfortunately, most of them are going to continue voting Democrat. It's very sad. Yeah, it really is. It's kind of funny. I know there are many different factors involved, but part of what I try to do in my show, America Can We Talk, I'm always, my, my premise I always say is, I, I'm my whole purpose in doing the show is to speak up and defend America, inspire people to understand the really unique, extraordinary greatness of America, which comes from the ideas of the founding and the notion of, you know, equal rights from God and God-given rights because you're born and rule of law and all the things spelled out in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. This whole extraordinary country of land of opportunity was built by those ideas. And I feel frustrated and deal with the women's vote because that, you know, still we have Actually, the women women in America tended to vote conservatively, vote Republican, up until 1980, and they got a little alarmed by Ronald Trump, Donald, sorry, excuse me, Ronald Reagan, who they viewed to be kind of, a little, they were a little bit worried he was a warmonger, even though he wasn't, but, and he actually, through the Cold War, brought her out, brought about the um, defeat of the Soviet Union, but that was the time period, 1980, when the shift happened, and I'm constantly trying to talk to women uh, and bring up issues from the perspective of women about you got to get on board with loving America and understand you're voting away your freedom, you're voting away uh, the greatness of America when you continue down the path of supporting uh, left-wing policies. So um, different target audience, but yeah, I love it. Okay, so on to your um, book. Um, I want to just talk about, I mean, some of these, you know, I'll show your website first. Because you made some great points in Jews for Donald Trump. Is, it, is this website mainly just a, a vehicle to put the information out there? Or are you trying to build it into where people can join and participate and, and submit their comments? What, what is the role of this website? 
it's mainly to sort of make a public declaration that there are Jews and many Jews who love Trump. And I did it particularly because I was so upset at what happened on the night of November 8th and the next day, November 9th. That night and the next day, people publicly and cruelly, I think, dumped Trump. Now, Trump is a man who for seven years has gone through hell on earth for us. He could have easily compromised and gone along, go with the flow and not suffer, but he did. Vilified, maligned, and libeled for seven years straight. They're trying to ruin his life. Two, at least two attorneys general are trying to throw him in jail. And after, and he's gone through two impeachments. And after all of that, for everyone to suddenly dump him on one night, and many conservatives did do, dump him that night, I thought was so cruel. And including, unfortunately, I must say, some Jews and even some Orthodox Jews did it. And I was so upset that I wanted to publicly declare that gratitude is actually one of the most important values of Judaism. And we Jews are very grateful for Trump for making America great. And that's the main case for Trump is making America great. But particularly for the Jewish community, he has been probably the most pro-Israel president who ever existed. He's been probably the most pro-Jewish president who ever existed. He said a few years ago, those who seek the Jewish people's destruction, we will seek their destruction. Now, that's an unbelievable statement going way beyond the call of duty. He's not the president of the Jews. He's the president of America. And yet to make such a strong statement. So he's someone as pro-Jewish and pro-America as him. For us to dump him like that, as so many people did, I thought it was so cruel that I wanted to publicly declare that there are many Jews who still lo who love Trump. In areas of Brooklyn, he got 80 to 90% of the vote in 2020. I found one precinct in Brooklyn, he got 97% of the vote. Oh so gosh. the grassroots on the street, there are a lot of Orthodox Jews who absolutely love him. And you know what? If you don't want to vote for him eventually, fine. You could do it slowly eventually. You don't publicly and coolly dump him all in one day like so many people did. And that's, I just, that was, that's the website was a reaction to that. Okay, love that. And again, um, the website we're speaking about is Jews, J-E-W-S, the digit for Donald Trump. And so it's JewsforDonaldTrump.com. I will say on the second page, I'm not going to read them, but the, on one of the pages you have the Jewish case for Trump. And honest to goodness, it was, I mean, really as, as equally as appealing should be to every voter, uh, just a quick listing, bullet point listing of many of his accomplishments, including, and this actually woke me up to uh, the recognition how many American uh, Jewish people don't really love Israel or feel attached to Israel. I always say, I think my husband and I feel, and we're Christian, I feel like we feel more attached to Israel and defensive of it than, than many Jewish Americans. But you're making reference to his having moved the embassy, uh, the American embassy, uh, to Jerusalem. I mean, that is like, it, it seemed like that was an understood goal uh, for years and, and promised by many Republican presidents and just never done. They, they, well, we thought about it. We tried, ran into opposition. And he just, as he did many things, he, he knew the right thing to do and he did it. So I urge our listeners, go to that page on this website. It's called The Jewish Case for Trump. Just great bullet points, irrefutable bullet points, actually. But let's turn to your book for a second. First of all, Emilio, my wonderful producer, uh, actually found a picture from Amazon. I wanted to show our listeners what the book looks like, if you can put that up. There you go. There's um, there's the Donald. Um, and again, the book is called Nuggets of Gold, Donald Trump on Marriage, War, Plastic Straws. <laughs> okay, Plastic Straws, that's funny. And 330 other topics. So, this is available on Amazon. I actually today ordered it. I'll get it on Saturday. But as I said earlier, I have a little printout of it so I can um, talk about it from that. So um, did you actually collect all these quotes yourself or did you hire a team to do it or what? No, I collected them myself. And it started in 2015, 2016. I was watching Trump just for sheer delight. I loved his political correctness. I loved that he spoke without a teleprompter. I loved that he spoke um, fast, to be honest. Um, but in addition to all that, I noticed that Trump also was making very astute observations on all sorts of topics, and he was packaging them in a very pithy and, you could say, very Trumpian type way. So I'll just give a few examples. He was talking about the Middle East a few times, and he said, you know, if all the politicians had just gone to the beach for the last 15 years, we would be in a better position today in the Middle East than where we are. And that was just so on point. I mean, if you or, or I were talking about that issue, it would take us 10 minutes to get to that same conclusion. He skipped the 10 minutes, came straight to the conclusion, and he packaged that conclusion and gave it a livelier flavor than most regular people would have. Um, he said once spoke about torture, and you know people say, does torture work? Does it not work? Is it moral? Is it not moral? He said, of course torture works. He's talking about waterboarding. Of course it works. And he said, and you know what? If it doesn't work, the terrorists deserve it anyways for all that they're doing to us. <laughs> that, that was my reaction also. I'm like, I could listen to a man like that all day long. More recently, he was asked, can you characterize your supporters? And he said, yes, I think I can. People who love America. 
And I was like, wow, that's brilliant. If you or I were discussing it, we would give an economic policy, a foreign policy. And he really got to the core of the issue. It really is true. The difference between Trump-loving Republicans and Trump-hating Democrats is love of America. That gets straight to the core of the issue. And so when it I does. Start, yeah, no, so I start seeing all these different ish, um, quotes. I said to myself, you know what? These are great quotes. I have to start collecting them. And then soon just got to, I, got, I started collecting all sorts of quotes, not just quotes like that, but even just in general witty quotes. I'll give you I guess, two last examples about himself. I, I have a whole appendix to the book where he's talking about himself. And, you know, left, people on the left sometimes talk about self-awareness, the, import, the importance of self-awareness. Trump has tremendous self-awareness. He constantly is making fun of himself, which also goes to show you he's not, you know, any real true dictator or fascist doesn't make fun of himself. Trump does all the time. He was asked after the North Korea summit, you know, what if you're making a mistake? And Trump said, you know what, if I'm making a mistake, a few months from now, I'll be the first person to admit it. And then he stopped and said, no, you're right. I probably won't. I'll probably make an excuse for myself. <laughs> which is so true, which is so true. And, and that's one last example. He was asked, to what do you attribute your popularity? And he said, honestly, it's my looks. He said, no, really, I'm very handsome. So he, oh my God. he's just very funny. He's very incisive. And I just, I, and I collected, at the end, I collected over 630 quotes on 330 different topics from 100, 180 different speeches, rallies, press conferences, et cetera. And yes, I did them all myself. It took a while, but I was enjoying watching the rallies while I was doing it. So it paid off. I'm sure you were. I'm sure you were. You know, um, it's a funny thing. You're describing this trait about him as being so direct and pithy. It really is. You know, I think politicians are always thinking what well, what I think is X. But to get to that point, I better run through, well, I don't mean this. And I don't mean any offense to this. And I don't really mean to imply this. And so by the time I get to their point, people are like, just what? What do you want trying to say? And that uh, that directness, you know, is, is really, it's very appealing. Um, and I, I will back up one more thing. You mentioned watching him in 2015 and 2016. So when he first announced he was running for president, were you right on board? You were ready for him to, to get, win the nomination? I actually was. I was one of those people who were supporting Trump from week one um, for a few reasons. Number one, um, I had heard him on Michael Sa the Michael Savage show a few years earlier talking about keeping the oil in Iraq. Now, I mean, I'm sure you'll recall, during that whole Iraq war, Bush and company were at pains to say, no, absolutely not. We are not going to war for the oil. Absolutely not. Out of the question. And here was Trump saying, just straightforwardly, yes, we, we went in there. We helped the Iraqis. We should keep all the oil. I said to myself, wow, that guy has guts. So I already had heard that a few years earlier. Also, the way Trump was talking, I loved, like you said, that he was not politically correct. I love that he spoke straight. I was so disillusioned by politics in 2015 that I said to myself that I was going to support him for three reasons. Number one, he loved America. You can't take that for granted anymore. Number one, he speaks like a normal person. To me, that meant the world. He speaks like a normal person. And the third one is escaping my mind, the second. But anyway, so I think he's normal, basically. So I supported him from week one, and when he refused to apologize to the media for the Mexican speech, and then after the McCain speech, when he refused to apologize, then that sealed the deal for me. I knew that was my man. Yep. I was making some notes where you're talking, because it's funny. I've done the show um, since 2014, and I will tell you, I also used to do, do um, Fox News um, national political analysis. I'm in radio, and when he first came along, I honestly... I said, I, I'm going to embarrass to admit, I will tell you at least two dozen times, the Republican voters are not going to pick Donald Trump. I actually said that because I'm used to politicians who are more, especially at that level, presidential level, who are who just speak in a very, you know, kind of an eloquent way. And they are, they sound... Um, not necessarily practiced, but they sound statesmanlike, and and he just radiated not statesmanlike. Uh, and I don't mean that he isn't a statesman, but I mean he just wasn't going to conform to the expectation of, of a lot of people in politics who've been following politics for a long time. But he grew on me, and I didn't back him at first. I, we are you know, we're in Texas, and we happen to know the Cruz family, and and you know, and Ted Cruz is a brilliant guy, and he's got all the ideas right about the constitution. And so, you know, we, we were good with him and he could, it got down to Ted and, um, and Donald Trump. And, you know, I, I was kind of realizing I can see why Donald Trump is winning all of these because you have so many practiced politicians tiptoeing around the issues. And he's just saying, this is a problem we have. And I mean, the bringing the border to the American people's attention was huge. I think up until that point, I remember when he was first talking about it, 
other politicians, other candidates were saying, well, yeah, you know, it's probably better to have a secure border. It was kind of like they were debating, you know, probably better to have, you know, uh, a 55 mile an hour speed limit or something as though there were, you know, very, and, and they didn't have the sense of immediacy and passion uh, that Donald Trump had. And he got people paying attention to what really the Obama administration has been doing for eight years before that. And frankly, the American left have been doing even longer than that, which is making the southern border porous, allowing more and more people to, to you know, cross with no responsibility, no, you know, we don't even know who they are, where they are. So he really did re-engage the American people um, in the, um, and just awake them up those issues. The other thing he did, and, and I, I, you kind of touched on it, but I think it's really important. The left had managed over decades through uh, schooling, through what kids were taught in school, they had managed to dumb down patriotism. They had managed to make patriotism and just, just kind of gut level love of America, something you should, you know, relegate to the ignorant, to the uninformed, to the uneducated who just, you know, rah, rah, flag waving people, but they don't understand. And they had managed to make patriotism kind of for like the low information voter type thinker. And what Donald Trump did by talking about the importance of the border, the military, uh, our trade practices that were driving jobs abroad. He really re-inspired in American people the idea, it's okay to love America. In fact, it's the right thing to love America. And this is how he bought all these, you know, kind of the lunch bucket crowd, the people who either didn't vote at all, or if, or if they did, they kind of voted with their union and voted Democrat. He re-inspired patriotism in the people. And I'm going to let you respond to all that, but I quickly got to mention for our radio listeners on Brady and Radio, thank you so very much for carrying the show. At 30 minutes past the hour, uh, you will go off to a three-minute commercial break, and we'll be right here when you come back. So do not go away during that three-minute break. You're also going to cut off at three minutes before the top of the hour. You will miss, therefore, at the end of the show, you'll miss my Why It Matters feature, one of the most popular features on the show. So you can go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org, and you can go to that website, listen to all past interviews, Why It Matters features. You can watch the end of today's show. You can watch the show live there at americacanwetalk.org. So radio listeners, do not go away on our break. Now back to you, Elliot Resnick. I'd love to have you just talk about and, and embellish on what I'm saying, or I'm assuming you're agreeing, which is this whole idea, Donald Trump made patriotism cool and right, passionate patriotism cool and right, and he reignited in the American people. I think that's what drove a lot of people, otherwise not political, to support him. But go ahead and you tell me other reasons you think that people got behind Trump in 2016. No, I think you're right. And I'll just, I remember the third thing, the reason I supported him was he thought outside the box. I know had, had, had Huckabee or Cruz won, that would have been fine with me. But I thought Trump had something above them, which was that he thinks outside the box that I liked, actually. But in terms of the patriotism, there's no question that you're right. And one thing that proved at that point to me was his mentioning constantly of George Patton and George MacArthur. Now, you could say that him being pro-abortion or something like that, maybe some tradition, you know, told him this is what you have to say in order to get Republican voters. Nobody told him to speak about Patton or MacArthur. That came straight from the gut. And Patton and MacArthur exuded love of America, you know, especially Patton. You know, he, Trump used to talk about Patton slapping soldiers across the face. Now, again, these are things that people are embarrassed by nowadays. How dare Patton slap somebody across the face? But it was a certain incident where the soldier was be, was being too weak, and, and Patton wanted, wanted to toughen, the, toughen the soldier up, so he slapped him across the face. And Trump loved that story. And Trump loved that story with Pershing, you know, dipping the, the bullets in the blood and, and killing 49 terrorists with the bullets dripped in blood. Nobody told Trump to say that. That came straight from Trump's gut, and that's classical American. It just is. I mean, like, Europeans hate it. It's not sophisticated. It's not enlightened. But that's typical American. And I love that. And Trump loved that. And I think that resonated with so many people. I do, too. And I have to say, I've been trying to do a pitch on the show. I'm going to do a show that um, on tomorrow about the various candidates running. But when you hear people on the Republican side say, well, you know, he was great for those four years, but, you know, he, a lot of people don't like him and, you know, he's divisive. And I, I want to talk about this divisive issue uh, with you. You know, because the left in this country, the anti-American left, controls the media in, in so many aspects of the media, they can use this expression, Trump is so divisive. And what they're really saying is, we've managed, we, the left-wing media, have managed to stir up so much 
irrational hatred of Donald Trump and so much irrational criticism and so much just lunatic, childish hysteria about Trump. So when he runs, you see he's divisive. They've created the division that they then use as a me as an argument why he shouldn't be the candidate. And even people on our side buy into that. But I would say, you know, the only difference, I mean, to me, to my sense of things, I think Barack Obama was the worst and most damaging president in all of American history because he normalized, normalized, legitimized, brought more into the mainstream what he, his Marxist worldview. He was a divisive president. He was very much about just just uh, taking America down, you know, subtle lines, subtle jabs, and in introducing Marxism. But the media in the country, for many reasons, were very careful. But I'm getting at the conservatives did not get hysterical, even though we didn't like Obama and we didn't want him in office. We didn't get hysterical. The left gets hysterical over Trump because they don't like his policies or the way he does things. And then the media makes that the story. Well, he's divisive and they're reporting on the division they have created. What do you think of that theory? No, I, I think the left is very good at those type of tactics that you just mentioned. And I think also in general, you know who's good usually by whom your, your enemies hate. If they hate Trump so much, there's a reason for that. And I think it would be very unwise for us to back away from the person they hate. They're trying to up the ante, we should match their ante, we should match their ferocity. And that's, I think, the mistake what happened on January 6th also. The, the left upped the ante, the left tried to say the election's over, and what are you going to do about it? And we tried to do something about it, and at the end, the conservatives threw all those January 6th protesters under the bus. The left will stop at nothing. They know no rules, they recognize no boundaries. They are determined, they don't care about the law, they always break the law when it suits them. You know, illegal immigration or marijuana, they openly defy federal law. What happened with the conservatives when the Supreme Court ruled against gay marriage? One judge in Alabama, Roy Moore, decided to, to, to defy the law. No one else. So we're, we're weaklings, basically. We, we will never stand up for our principles. The left, though, always stands up for their principles. Imagine if every judge in, Al in Alabama had said, no, we're, we're not going to um, recognize um, men marrying men in this state. What was the federal government going to do? Send in the army? Let them send in the army. Make an issue of it. The left does it all the time. The left does not care about the law at all. They have no boundaries. They are determined to get power at all costs. And we have to match them every step of the way. However ferocious they are, we have to match their ferocity. And, and that's why you might need Trump, because you're not going to win by having some nice and placid person. The left is not going to give up until we force them to give up. And unfortunately, long term, really what we need to do is take over the culture. Because like you said, they have, they have a, 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 a stranglehold on us with the media, with education, with Hollywood. They control the culture. You know, even if Carrie Lake manages to pull off of, of uh, the victory, it shouldn't have been so close. The fact that half this country is voting Democrat, the fact that half the country voted for somebody who's basically not all there mentally in Pennsylvania shows you <laughs> how damaged we are culturally because your average uninformed voter just gets his values from the schooling he went to, from the movies he watches, and from the two minutes of radio he turns on in the car from CBS or something like, or ABC. So we really need to have a long-term strategy in terms of taking over education and, and media, or we're, I think we're doomed long-term. But short-term, we have to fight. Love that we have to fight. And I will actually say, I think more Americans are awake now to the damage that has been done to America's culture, education system, entertainment. There are more Americans awake now than ever before. Um, and I, it's a beautiful thing. I think the last two years uh, under he who was um, inserted in the White House uh, in 2021, uh, who did not win that election in my opinion, but in any case, when we watch the destruction of America happening before our very eyes, I think people are waking up. It's why all these moms are showing up at school boards, never happened before, uh, why they won't stop showing up until the school boards bend, why they show up and they have women running who had no intention of being candidates, running for school board and other offices. We are seeing this. I, I, and I couldn't agree more, the reclaiming of the culture, and it takes in part the bravery uh, of people who see what's happening to speak truth like Trump does. Trump doesn't you know, tiptoe in and, and kind of hint at an issue. He figures out what's right. I am unaware of any issue where I disagree with him. There may be some. I don't know if I get down the weeds. But overall, he sees a pro-America, pro-military, pro-border, uh, pro-free markets, pro-capitalism, you know, pro-good education for children uh, of 
literally meaning they read they learn how to read and write and all the things that kids should be learning so yeah i, I think the um pushback against the uh people who are saying you know trump is too divisive it's got to be no trump is the only answer for what we have right now he's the only answer and he's only answer is strong enough we have to be better as uh, citizens and advocates for pointing out why we think that. Okay, Elliot Resnick, people could find your book. Again, your book is Nuggets of Gold, Donald Trump on Marriage, War, Plastic Straws, and 330 Other Topics. Um, and it's on Amazon. You can get it there. Um, and also, for urge people to check out your website, um, because I think you have some, uh, just some really succinct points for people to really think about you know, what was life in America like? What did Donald Trump accomplish in four years? So that website, again, for folks is Jews, the numeral four, DonaldTrump.com. Elliot Resnick, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great to talk with you. Thank you so much. Okay, folks, I'm going to do two other uh, quick things in the show today. I certainly hope I'm going to do two other things. Um, one is, I want to tell you, right uh, right now in Washington, D.C., in the Senate, there is a debate ongoing in the Senate regarding a bill called Defense of Marriage. And as many other um, examples exist, um, the left names things for exactly the opposite of what they really are doing. For example, they went through, they called it the Inflation Reduction Act, when even their own, everyone in Washington who looked at it, including all the experts, said, no, actually, this is going to radically increase inflation. They don't care. They passed Inflation Reduction Act, which has had a horrific, and will continue to have a horrific impact, because it's is un untethered to economic reality. Well, the similar thing's happening, and um, this issue, this um, Federal Bill, uh, Defense of Marriage Act, is really, um, I want to mention uh, some unique points about it. So all they're doing, to first of all, you likely recall, the Supreme Court in the Obergefell decision uh, essentially said they, they established uh, the uh, notion that uh, a marriage is, you know, um, anything a state says. They're basically that states have to honor uh, a marital union, whether it is a man and a woman or two men or two women, uh, that you can't have different laws in different states. So we have to have marriage. So basically, Obergefell dissolved the literally, uh, you know, centuries, millennia old understanding of marriage and just said marriage is whatever you want it to be. And so that was a Supreme Court decision. So states, you know, are supposed to follow that and can't have laws saying, no, here in our state, we're going to have a different def definition of marriage. So this is you know, already in place. What I just said, Obergefell is um, the Supreme Court's uh, ruling. So in Congress, they've taken up a bill um, that was actually proposed by a Republican and a Democrat. I could, if I were speaking in person, I'd say, guess which Republican sponsored this in the Senate, and you'd probably get the answer right. Susan Collins of Maine. But this is a bill essentially to say, kind of to codify a Burgerfell, make it into law, just say basically it's uh, changing the Defense of Marriage Act, and they're basically calling it, um, that This their idea of it is that they're going to have a federal definition um, that basically says marriage is any two people, and I don't even know if it's limited to two, it might be three people. And so the point of this is the left does in many instances, and what they're doing here is they frighten people about what may occur if the whatever they want passed doesn't get passed. And so they have um, they have frightened people into thinking that somehow um, that we're going to have a crackdown on, we're going to make, um, I'm trying to find, um, I'm sorry, this is called the Respect for Marriage Act. I knew I wasn't saying it right, I'm sorry. The current bill pending and being debated today in the Senate is, in Senate is a Respect for Marriage Act, again, co-sponsored by Democrat Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin and Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine. And so I just want to make a couple quick points about this. Um, it's a, you know, first of all, this is an issue where, um, you know, America is divided. You have people um, who are people of faith who strongly believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And it's not, you know, just ancient, you know, hypocrisy or ancient, uh, you know, or unthinking bigotry. It is believed to be, they believe it to be what the Bible describes, Old and New Testament, that the Bible says marriage is one man and one woman. 
and they have, as we know in this country, a massively powerful and organized uh, LGBTQ movement. And that movement, even called by Bill Maher, a, a leftist, uh, referred to them as the gay mafia. And he was making the point, this is now like three years ago, I think, making the point that when the LGBTQ community wants some outcome, they want something, they go full bore, pushing at, mock, ridicule, attack, you know, just destroy anyone in their path who won't agree with them. And so now they want to have this bill pass, this um, Respect for Marriage Act in the Senate. And so because the Senate, Senate is equally divided, they had to get 12 Republicans, they had to get at least 10 Republicans to overcome the otherwise what would happen, the filibuster. So they had to get 10 Republicans to sign on. They've actually gotten 12. So if 12 Republicans sign on, what that allows them to do is to get the bill to the floor of the Senate. And so you have a Democrat majority in the House, Democrat, you know, evenly, evenly tied more or less in the Senate. But these 12 Republicans going along with the bill, this Respect for Marriage Act, Respect for Marriage Act, gets the bill to the floor of the Senate. And I know that it's very, the left makes the easiest arguments in the world. They say, well, who, why, why do you have to stand so stridently against gay marriage? Why do you have to be so outspoken? Why do you have to fight it so much? Let these people go, let them live you, their life and you live your life. And if that were the argument, they'd have a much better point. Because that would be, you know, there's, there's, there are not people in this country running around trying to end all same-sex unions. I mean, they just they exist in every state, and, and, and people know this. So it's not the mission of the people concerned about this bill to say, we want to end all same-sex marriages. The reason there's concern about this bill is to understand it's establishing a federal definition in federal law that marriage is basically any two people, or as I say, it might even be more people, who knows, but it's any, any two people. And what that does is it gives power to many federal agencies, as well as state level agencies, as well as potentially even civil litigation. So it threatens Christian churches, probably Jewish synagogues, because many in the conservative Jewish world uh, support traditional marriage. So you have churches, you have, and, and synagogues, and maybe even mosques. You have uh, hospitals. You have many hospitals are funded by, they are created and funded by Christians, often Catholic hospitals or some Protestant denominations have hospitals. Get the point that once you establish it is federal law, that you must recognize any marriage, any two people, you get around to the point where you ask, well, what is it then that happens to a Catholic school that says we actually don't hire gay teachers because we want traditional Catholic doctrine taught to the students, which is marriage is a man and a woman. What, what happens to a Catholic school, any other private religious school, hospitals that may have provisions regarding who's, you know, whether about abortion, about who they treat as a spouse. What this bill will do is undermine the ability of people of faith to stand with and live out their faith, their belief in what a marriage is. Again, it's not the conservatives who believe in traditional marriage who are trying to shut down the same-sex unions it is the advocates for the LGBTQ community, the advocates for same-sex marriage, pushing to shut down the ability of Americans who believe in traditional marriage from living out their faith, whether it is their, their Catholic high school, their church itself. The church may say, we don't hire you know, gay pastors, uh, we don't hire, we don't um, allow gay Sunday school teachers. Whatever it is a church would do, a school, um, institutions of faith, may want to carry out their faith and make decisions based on what they believe to be the God-defined idea of marriage. And so the reason people are concerned that what's happening in Washington is because this is a, you know, the camel's nose in the tent, what other expression you want to use. It is, but in this case, it's even more than that. It is the perpetual dissolution, the perpetual ongoing next step along the way destruction of the idea that people of faith in America are allowed to have a, um, a un uh, people of faith are allowed to live out their faith 
and in the in the organizations they back, they support, they fund, they created. I mean, literally, the, these organizations are often they were created by the Catholic Church, other churches, and those institutions will be under threat from the EEOC, other federal agencies, state agencies across this country because you're expanding the push for forcing Americans to agree with the LGBTQ definition of what marriage is. The left gets a lot of mileage of out of trying to claim that they are being the victims, they are being victimized by these crazy far-right Christians who just keep on you know, trying to denounce our marriages. That is not what is happening here. This is not Christians or those of traditional faith believing in, in, in a traditional marriage trying to shut down gay marriage or, or same-sex unions. This is the advocates, the LGBTQ, as Bill Maher so aptly called them, mafia, trying to say, not only do we get to have gay marriage, we get to have marriage, um, you know, same-sex unions, but we're going to make you agree. You're going to agree. You're going to honor it. You're going to have to shut up about what you think marriage is. Not only shut up about it, you're going to, you can't live it out in the institutions you've created. So it's a, I, I have several friends just deeply concerned about this and, and, and deeply disappointed in the 12 Republicans who went along uh, with moving this bill forward. And I will say the 12 Republicans are kind of symbolic of many other issues involving Republicans where they just won't stand up, you know, when the, uh, you know, kitchen gets hot, when there is pressure because these Republicans, I'm telling you, I do not believe these Republicans in the United States Senate actually are all on board with gay marriage. I think what they're on board with is they like their jobs. They like being serving in the Senate. They like you know, not being attacked in the media. They like not having the Twitter mob come after them. They like not having the media attack them. So if the answer is, okay, fine, fine, fine. I'll support this bill. I'll help it get to the floor. They'll do it. Because not because they agree with it, but because they think it's a safer course for them to agree to the bill and, and, and let it go out there, even though they know the consequences, people of faith will then have another, or the enemies of people of faith will have another, you know, arrow in their quiver, another way to attack uh, Americans of faith because we're in violation of at least the spirit of this law, if not the actual law, when we go ahead and have... Um, and, and want to stand up and say, no, in our institution, you know, we honor traditional marriage only. I mean, it is just, you know, I have friends very, very upset about this. I, it, it feels a little bit like the horse is out of the barn, but there is a, um, there are massive, massive long-term implications for the freedom of religion in America if this bill passes. And I don't think any of these Republican senators who got behind it, they either never thought about it, didn't consider the long-term implications, or they felt it was more important to hold on to their power and duck and avoid the attack of the uh, LGBTQ world, uh, you know, mob. Uh, and so easier to support it and, and keep not have their name in headlines and not have attacks coming on them in their jurisdictions. So it's easier to go ahead and support the bill, even though the cost to people of faith in America will be will be significant. Anyway, we'll track that bill. Okay, one more thing I want to hit, and this is, I tell you folks, I've been talking many times on this show um, about the idea um, of uh, the Great Reset. And it occurred to me, I had a thought that I really want to share with you. So uh, there is a book out um, on the Great Reset, um, and I'm just going to tell you about the book, but this is one argument, and I, I want I, the reason I want to do this is I think that there are many people who, these are probably traditional, these are Trump voters, the people who came out of the woodwork who hadn't voted for decades, but they hear a guy saying, yay, America, pro-America, America first, and MAGA, and, and that the American government should look out for the American people. These people, you know, who love Trump and voted for him and love the conservative agenda, there are many of them who don't have time to think about this whole great reset and whether or not it really matters to them. I want to make arguments over the next year and I don't know how long about how much this great reset could really change things. Because if you're the average American and you, you know, and you're not uh, high income, you're, you know, you work every day, every week, you bring your paycheck home so you can put food on the table and pay your rent or pay your mortgage, 
and maybe pay your car payment and get your kids to piano practice on time and get little Timmy off to baseball practice. You know, your life is consumed and you hear this kind of gobbledygook talk about, you know, ideology of the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab and all these people in the G20 summit and these international meetings. And you could be thinking, what do I care? Why would I care? I don't care what they say at these international meetings. I live in America. I live in rural, wherever you live. I live in a small town. None of this happening across the world matters to me. It's a very reasonable view for many people to have. And the reason I want to start harping on it more and more is because people often wait on political issues, on getting involved in cultural issues until the issues at their doorstep, until they, or the issues in their wallet that they all of a sudden realize, oh, this is why I should have cared about taxes going up because all of a sudden I don't have the money I thought I did. Even though I keep working, I don't have the money in my wallet. And so these kind of at your front doorstep issues tend to drive people into activism. Um, and it's, it's why, for example, as I always mention, why these parents are showing up at school boards because they're finally seeing, dang, this left-wing lunacy of critical race theory and LGBTQ activism and transgender grooming for kindergartners is right in my face now. And now I'll show up. But I want to talk to you about how consequential the Great Reset is. So there's a, this book I mentioned is out, um, and it's called Against the Great Reset, 18 Theses Contra to the New World Order. Contra the New World Order. It's a pretty intense book, but there was one segment, uh, and so it's just arguments against the Great Reset. I want to make the point that one of these guys was, was talking about is how you know, the people I'm describing who say, I just want to, you know, get through the day, get a paycheck, blah, blah, blah. These people still think, the vast majority of them still think that America is a land of promise and opportunity, that they encourage their kids, you know, stay in school, go to school, get good grades, pay attention, don't get in trouble, work hard, develop your skills, develop your interests, you know, pursue education, get yourself off to a career where you can thrive and, and perhaps go to college and go to grad school and become, you can be anything you want to be. You hear that concept expressed to children in America, and this is expressed to children in America from the lowest income to, you know, middle-class America and up, up to the higher echelon. But this middle-class American idea, the idea that families in America have taught their kids for decades, you can rise up. You can become something better, but you have to work hard, stay in school, all the things I just said. You have to apply yourself. This is the reason America was viewed as a land of opportunity by millions around the world, because we set up this system here to encourage, to have upward mobility possible, to encourage people to think, I can be something better. I can earn more money than my parents. I can have a better job than my parents. I can own a home. My parents only had an apartment or a trailer that we grew up in. You had people believing in the American dream and they believed in the right of the individual and the capacity of the individual to thrive, to grow, to become something. And now I go back to the Great Reset. Part of the mentality, a huge part of the mentality of the Great Reset is to reset all of the world, including America, take away everything good I just talked about and replace it with, it's kind of a, you know, it's a socialist Marxist concept, but it's the concept that the people of the world are really, the vast majority of them are pretty much peasants. They are the proletariat. They're the working people. And that what government's job is, is to take control of every issue, take control of the issues of the money that put climate policy in place, put every policy they want, eviscerate borders, put everything in place. And this wide swath of people, the, the ignorant peasants masses who throughout history had lived as peasants under the monarchies throughout all of Western Europe around the world. There was the, the ruling class and monarchies and the peasants who, you know, hopefully had a place to stay overnight with a roof over their head and food to eat. And you had the, the whole, you know, feudal society with the serfs who just waited and hoped that maybe I'll get a tiny little space I can garden. And you had the lords and the serfs. All of history was set up like this. America was that different in what it created. America's ideas created and the concept of free markets created the middle class. So back to what the Great Reset is doing, among the other things, it will eviscerate 
eviscerate, destroy, dismantle the middle class. How these great reset thinkers think. You remember Klaus Schwab saying, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy? In fact, we have a quick, quick, quick segment. You can play that. This is Klaus Schwab, just the beginning of what he put out about you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. If you can quick get to that, Emilio. I don't know if you've got that ready. Um, Okay, you can, uh, I, I linked this on our show today, but the point of what they're saying, you'll own nothing, you'll be happy. You don't need to own anything. You'll have things delivered. And you, the masses, the peasants, you'll be treated by the ruling elite, this global elite, this global socialist elite. You'll be provided universal basic income. You'll have enough money so you're not starving. You can't get ahead. You can't build, you can't own, you can't dream but enough money, universal basic income, once a week, once a month, will give you enough to get through. So the universal basic income concept, so you're no longer striving to be self-reliant and growing in your uh, capacity to earn and to contribute value to your society. So universal basic income, you will be told what shots you're going to get, what uh, COVID or other vaccines you will be required to have, what boosters you'll be allowed to have. You'll be treated like Schwab's, Schwab's, you know, actually top right-hand man, uh, Uval Harari, the most uh, among the most evil people in the world, who has described human beings. This is Klaus Schwab, head of World Economic Forum, top advisor, Yuval Harari, has says, describes people, humans are hackable animals, hackable units. Humans are unnecessary. Humans are useless. This is this mentality springing out of this new world order concept of this whole great reset. It's a reset of everything of everything, of the concept of America and, I, and where you have potential to grow and dream and, and become self-sufficient. None of that is going to be there. And if you think, if you're, you know, Joe Sixpack and you thinking, what do I care? There's, you're still talk, 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 bunch of ideas. When you understand the percentage of people who run the American left, the anti-American Marxist Democrat party, they are 100% on board with this great reset. They're all about it. They love rubbing elbows with the World Economic Forum powerful. They think they're part of it. They think they're going to be the ones running things. It's really vital you understand this. Your capacity to live the middle class dream, to rise up and create the American dream for yourself, it is being eviscerated. It will be destroyed under this great reset. I'm gonna to have to go, because uh, we're nearly out of time. I'm gonna be exploring this with you more and more, but understand the great reset isn't just about someplace else far away. It is an utter destruction of the very idea of America and the promise of America, the promise of middle class rising up and becoming better is a destruction of all of it. And the anti-American left loves it. I close every show uh, by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started our show today. We, we were talking about um, Arizona election update. Cochise County won't certify. Mojave County does under threat. Arizona remains ground zero for exposing and honestly dealing with obvious election fraud. Maricopa County Board of Supervisors defied the people and the evidence and went forward with certification of obviously flawed results. I had a bunch of clips ready, really poignant clips, but I couldn't get to them. Read Emerald Robinson's Substack. Is the federal government rigging Maricopa County? It's a must-read article. Cochise County voted against certification. Mojave voted for under duress of legal threat. Literally, as you heard that guy say, pro threat of prosecution for a felony. Carrie Lake is promising major litigation and refusal to quit. Truth cannot be defied and denied forever. And the truth is that the Arizona election was rigged and stolen, and everyone knows it. Tune into America Can We Talk on Thursday for, this is actually not tomorrow, it's Thursday, for a live interview with Arizona GOP Chair Dr. Kelly Ward. And the Defense of Marriage Act debate today, gaslighting continues. Every left-sponsored bill is deceptively named, doing the opposite of what the name implies. Defense of Marriage Act is really Defense of Gay Non-Traditional Marriage Act, or this is called Respect for Marriage. Is, um, and, you know, the bill was really called, it should be called Disrespect of Traditional Marriage. Anyway. SCOTUS has already legalized same-sex marriage in the USA. So why is the bill even needed? It is not needed 
was the push for what Bill Maher called the gay mafia to drive a terminal stake in the biblical teaching about marriage and homosexuality. Christian churches will be forced to embrace the LGBTQ agenda or face legal liability for adhering to biblical teaching. Legislation is likely to pass. Rhinos in the Senate believe their incumbency is more secure if they ignore freedom of religion in favor of appeasing the left, but that never works in practice. And finally, why Joe Sixpack should care about the Great Reset. Pre-America, there was essentially no such thing as a middle class. Lords and serfs, rich and poor, rulers and masses, America's founding leveled the playing field of human history, eliminated hierarchies and classes in favor of honoring the individual. All have an inalienable get God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Gave birth to the idea of upward mobility, rise based on effort and merit, no limits for a middle class. Great Reset abandons the dignity and the potential of the individual, denies God, and denies any such thing as a child of God. And instead, too many useless people, humans are hackable machines, you will own nothing and be happy. This is why so many see this era as a time of spiritual war. Who decides man's identity, health, and potential? And that my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show, America Can We Talk, to talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Talk. Truth about America. Can you hear?